scary movie, Sydney. What's your favorite scary movie? Hi, my name is Jamie Roberts. And I'm Robert Lundrum. And welcome to Running Scared. The podcast where we review the movies that had you running away, but coming back for more. Oh yeah, Rob, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, buddy. How are you, man? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I think first things first, before we get going, I want to shout out all the listeners. Um, Co-host here, Robert Lendrum, is a homeowner. He went through an arduous process for the last (laughs) two weeks, (laughs) two months, but he finally got a place. He's going to be coming to the big hammer. So uh, welcome to Hamilton, Rob. How are you feeling? Oh, man. You know, you know how it is. Those of you who bought a house and it's not a fun (laughs) experience, but yeah, I'm excited to get going, man. I mean, it sucks to leave Toronto in one way, but I'm very excited about the new, uh, the new venture, moving to Hamilton, new house, the whole nine yards, man. I'm pretty excited. And and there's so much cool stuff going on in that city that it it feels pretty cool to be going to a place where, you know, it's up and coming and lots of new stuff is going to be happening, but it's got a scene. And I I think that was something I didn't want to leave behind was a, I didn't want to leave an urban setting behind. So it's cool to be in a different city. Yeah, we got we got one here and we got a whole we got a lot of other stuff as well. But uh, but yeah, you're going to love it here. And and speaking about loving things, what movie are we doing this week? I, I We love this movie, don't we? We do. This is Scream. You got to love this movie, especially if you're a horror movie fan, because this is the movie that kind of brings it all together. This really is a movie for you and I and our, our uh, coming up as teenagers, because this movie changed everything. And, you know, I talked about this back on podcast, I think one where you and I, we talked about how you and I, like we used to just rent the the series and watch all the series, you know, all the Friday 13th, all this, all the Halloweens, all the, all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. But this is the movie that just sort of put a big stop on everything and said, you know what, we got to stop and rethink this whole genre. There's kind of like horror movies before Scream and horror movies after Scream. This is a, this movie um, is so self-aware of itself and it's so self-aware of the genre that it's within and it, and it's, and it's, working with all the tropes and making fun of them and pointing at them and then subverting them in such a clever way. It, it really became a cornerstone. And and this is at a time when horror movies had become very predictable. And it, I don't know if you want to say, use the word lazy, but definitely had got to a point where I think you could easily guess what was going to happen often in these films to the point that you know, uh, the fan base itself was probably losing some some interest in, in the gas of these films was kind of wearing out. You know, it's that typical thing. And they even make fun of it in the movie where it's like you see someone do something and you're just yelling at the screen going, that is a stupid, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It's a stupid move. And this movie is aware of that and actually starts messing with you. And, and we'll talk about some of the ways they do that. But Yes, this film really marks a line in the sand and movies that came after Scream really had to think through how they did things because Scream had made it, had pointed out all the flaws of the genre, I guess you could say, and had to make them think, you know, how we can we make this better? How do we how do we change this? Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, Scream, uh, directed by Wes Craven, one of the masters of the genre. Um, it, it's it's an amazing movie. And, and what you talked about, <laughs> us as kids, doing the marathon sessions, renting all the movies and, and just loving them. And really, it just makes it so much more enjoyable when, when this movie re- was released in 1996 and being able to spot all the 
just amazing uh, direction pieces, character pieces that for, you know, and all those um, all those aspects from those older films, and have them into like all kind of wrapped up into this new fresh package uh, was was amazing. So, yeah, so many references. It, it actually oh, tons. The thing about this movie that I think is fun for you and me is it felt like we were we could be in this movie, like with the, in the sense that we were like, oh, that's from this. Oh, that's from this. And then they literally have Randy, a character in this film who is. He, he's doing what we're doing as we're watching it. Rob, Hollywood movies, you worked in a fucking video store. <laughs> <laughs> That's just it, man. Like, I feel like me and Randy are the same character, although I'm not nearly as gross as that guy is. But how, <laughs> well, you're, uh, you're kind of, no. In 96, <laughs> how, uh, you know, these characters are supposed to be, you know, we're going to be dating ourselves here, right? Or aging ourselves. But, you know, these characters, I think, are probably supposed to be, what are they? You know, we're Canadian, but they're supposed to be what? Seniors? seniors is that what they're called in, yeah. in state seniors right seniors. so we would have been we would have been 16 in 96 or yeah 16 so we're, 16 17 yeah so we're right around the age right so definitely we know the movies we can identify with the characters um and it's just got some classic 90s film stuff oh, in oh my god well. there's so much 90s in this movie even oh, yeah. even the font scream font <laughs> is like straight out of the 90s yeah, like that kind of like jagged, you know, little bit uh, weird typewriter. Yeah, look. for for sure. And instead of putting our contact information and social media links at the end, let's just put them at the beginning. So if you want to send us an email or talk to us for an, any reason, you can send us an email at therunningscaredpodcast.gmail.com. If you want to get us on Twitter, you can get us at, at runningscaredpd. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at, at runningscaredpod. Yeah, absolutely. So, we're trying to get all that off the ground. Yeah, we're a little slow right now. Uh, you know, getting it fully active, but we are starting to use it more often. Uh, we want to do it, get out there and get people to start talking with us. Like we're more interested in conversation than anything. I mean, we will kind of do some promo eventually, but truthfully, we just want to get out there and start talking to other people who love these movies. And we got something coming up. Aren't we going to have that little, uh, that little special question that we're going to put out to the listeners? Um, I think in the coming weeks, maybe to find out what we might want to be reviewing in the future. Yeah, we're yeah. Well, let's do that. We'll do a poll or something, and yeah. just to see if we can get some people interested in what we're doing. Uh, but you know, we're not really uh, worried about the numbers just yet. We're worried about just like keeping make to making content, and then you know, hopefully, with the content, will speak for itself, and that'll help us, you know, find people out there who want to talk to us. Absolutely. All right. So let's kick this up. Let's kick this. Uh, let's get this going. All right, in segment one here, we want to take a look at, uh, you know, the five sort of main references back to some of those cult slasher films from would be the late 70s and 80s. So we're going to look at five of those big homages, those big reference pieces. And then we're going to contrast that to five new things, five unique things that this movie brings, uh, especially. And even we're going to try to make some connections to some movies in the future that have maybe done the same thing that this movie, Scream, pulled from the past okay so i think we're going to try mm -hmm. to weave that all together so so let's start with the top five in our eyes those those homages to slasher films of the past so we've got coming in at number one here i think we can we can talk about this is is a very basic and simple one rob what do you think about the mask and the weapon so i studied visual art uh when i went to university and like <laughs> Like every fine arts degree, fine, yeah, the uh, bachelor of fuck all, uh, BFA, <laughs> and like 
I, like every fucking 19 year old or 18 year old university who did art school, had the poster of The Scream on my wall, which is crazy because the poster is like way bigger than the original painting. The painting's actually pretty small. And I had this poster that was like fucking massive. Anyway, it's this, it's called The Scream by Edward Munch. And the face in that painting, you know, it's an expressionist painting. So, like, it's, uh, it's painted not realistically. And his face is kind of, he's holding his chin almost like Home Alone style. Um, and he's got this crazy scream look on his face as the, as the background is all waving into the, into the distance. Um, anyway, that face is very close to what the mask is for this movie. And I think there's some other reference points to that too, but I gotta say, I love that mask. It is creepy. It is scary. Um, and it was so simple and yet, and just another point before you, you go off, Jamie, I think what's interesting too is we've talked about how this movie has some comical elements in the sense that the killers are just regular guys, which is fun because you get to see them get beat on a little bit and you get to see – and they're not like these invincible, uh, you know, unstoppable creatures like Jason or – That they just walk. You can shoot them 15 times and yeah. they don't – Yeah. Yeah. These are actually real dudes. And so there is something funny about that mask too. It's not funny, haha, but there's something like unsettling and also not completely horrifying about it. I don't know. It, it really, it really is a well-designed mask that really walks a fine line. It helps this movie work. Yeah, they, they. I think in the movie they call it like the Grim Reaper costume, and I think I no, was reading. I think it's Ghostface Killer or Ghostface Killer. Yeah, like the rapper. Ghostface, catch the blast of a hype burst. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, I think, uh, I read something where, where Wes Craven, um, you know, he referenced that it was from a series of masks. I think it was called the, the peanut eyed mask or the peanut eyed Halloween mask. And it was from this fantastic faces series from a few years earlier. So I think, I don't know if he, um, or if the, whoever came up with, with that mask design had referenced the painting, but absolutely it, it definitely looks like that. If you look at a similarity between, um, you know, Jason and and Michael Myers, the fa- the fact that the main mask is white, right? So he's got the hockey mask; it's white, or at least it starts. Mm-hmm. When you go through the movies, uh, it it's definitely gross. dirties up a little bit. <laughs> but my, but Michael Myers, you know, you can see it's a different type of mask, um, but it's it you know it's got the same kind of color color scheme going with the black eyes and the white mask. Yeah. I think what makes it a little, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. And I I think we could even we could even bring it in now is you know i i can connect this to if you've seen the movie the ring and one of the opening scenes is you know uh where they find the girl when the police come in and they open up the closet and she's sitting there um up against it and her face is like you know people that have seen the ring know exactly what i'm talking about i always feel like there's a connection between that face and this mask i don't know if it was an influence at all but it is it is creepy in some in some weird way. It's not overly scary, but it's scary enough. And I think that it's it's just they had to be masked killers in this movie. If you're yeah. going to pay homage to some of those older slasher films, you need to cover your face. Yeah, and and I think you're right. The black eyes have a lot to do with what makes a scary mask. There's a comic book uh, creator slash theorist. His name's Scott McCloud. Made a book called Understanding Comics. In that, he talks about how comic book characters are very accessible often when they have simplified eyes big wide eyes or just circle eyes makes them really easy to read into. But when you paint it black and it's purely black, it actually becomes frightening and soulless and sort of evil looking 
only it's it's just a simple technique that really creates a impenetrable thing you can't look into it anymore it yeah it, you know so anyway a simple thing but that mask is is dope it's so cool yeah and what's another simple thing classic um the knife yeah the weapon's pretty simple eh Oh, it's a hunting knife, right? It's, it's, you know what I mean? It's not, you know, Michael Myers was the kitchen knife, right? He was like the, you know, the larger, I'm going to be cutting on my lettuce, that kind of knife. This one is a hunting knife, a sharp hunting knife with a dark handle. Um, you know, that's, that stainless steel and, you know, good size. Absolutely. You, you, even though they actually use a, um, they use a gun later on, the knife is used to make all the killings and that's what gives you the gore. And I think that's, you know, anybody that likes a good slasher film is going to like a little bit of gore. And absolutely, this movie has that as well. All right, so we go into number number two. And I think one of the big homages in this film, and Rob, I think you mentioned it earlier on that there was something like 50 or 60 references to yeah. movies of the past. Movies is, and TV, there's, it's like 60 plus in this movie. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there are there are scenes in the film there are characters, there are shots that are that are damn near identical to movies in the past. And I think that uh, I want to pick out a couple of them, okay? One of the first ones, and it's near the beginning of the film, and I literally saw it right away, and, and it, I, I wanted to uh, make a point of it and just throw a, sti- a timestamp on it. So this is 1848 in Scream. In Halloween 1, when Laurie Strode is sitting in class, and she... You know, she's sitting, I think she's two rows in from the window. And there's a shot that comes from the window side of her looking kind of on a diagonal towards the camera. And then there's a shot that looks out, right? And, you know, the whole intention is she's kind of looking off. Uh, she's a little bit unsure. She's a little bit wary. In this movie, Sydney's sitting in class and she's looking over at, uh, at Casey, who's just been killed in the first scene. It's an empty chair. But the way she's looking and the way the camera angle catches her is exactly the same as in Halloween as Carpenter caught Laurie Strode. And I just thought, oh my God, they're, 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 it's already started, right? You've got the first scene and then really, really quickly afterwards, you've got this amazing throwback scene. And it's a, it's, it's a very kind of memorable scene from Halloween. Oh, so I think that's- I think that, you're, you're skipping one too, because the, the scene before that, Nev Campbell in her bedroom- when her boyfriend oh, Billy okay. comes to the window, that is a direct oh. reference to Hall- uh, Nightmare on Elm Street number one, right? Oh, absolutely, right. And what does and and you know we were talking about it earlier. You know we know that Skeet Ulrich, Johnny Depp, they not only they, are they coming through the same window, they fucking look the same. They man. totally cast Skeet Ulrich because he looks so much like Johnny Depp. And yes, he does the exact same entrance as Johnny Depp. It's like hand picked, right? So you know what was interesting too. I I was listening to an interview and David Arquette actually read for the part of of um, uh, a Skeet Ulrich's role at first, eh? Oh my God, and, that would have been the worst. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like, we, you know, doofus number one, We he got cast into the right, uh, yes. into the right spot, but actually he was going to read. But, you know, Skeet Ulrich, you know, what's he done since? I don't know, you know, but he was perfect for this role because... He played the psychopath perfectly. Uh, he played the narcissist. He looked like Johnny Depp. He was able, like the even some of the movements. Although if you go back and watch Nightmare on Elm Street, Johnny Depp seems a lot more wholesome kind of character. But just on the on the visual, absolutely right. The second one um, is you know there's a great scene where 
after Sydney uh, has been attacked in her in her room, and she's over at her friend's house. This is the the character played by Rose McGowan. The two of them are Tatum. Tatum, thank you. The two of them are um, having like a sleepover, and then Dewey comes in. You know, girls have a good night, and the two of them are there, and we can't forget that um, in this scene. Nightmare on Elm Street, when you have uh, Tina Gray and you have Helen Lagenkamp, and they're with with they're doing their sleepover scene, and Johnny Depp is there. He's like fixing a TV or something like that. So those two scenes were absolutely identical. The only difference was is that in Scream, the two of them were up in the uh, in the bedroom, and in this, in in Nightmare on Elm Street, they were downstairs in uh, like kind of in. I don't know what you call it, like a family room, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the second big one. And then the third one that really jumped out at me, and Rob, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you if there's any that you picked out. So one of the creepiest scenes in Nightmare on Elm Street is where Logan Camp is out in the hallway. And it's like, if you've ever, you know, anybody that's ever been in high school, as we all have, and then... Sometimes, you know, the hallways, it's such a, it's such a black and white contrast, right? They go from being very busy to being just dead quiet and there's nobody in the hallways. And this one scene is that she's out and this is where she goes down to the, to the boiler room and there's nobody around. And then she passes the girl and then Freddie's there and it's just really creepy and really eerie. There's a scene in Scream where Sydney is in the hallway alone. She's going into the bathroom. She's eventually attacked in there. But the same sort of thing happens where you come from this this very loud environment to this very quiet environment. And even the the tiles and the lockers are of a similar color and is very reminiscent to kind of capture the mood and the feeling of both those movies. You know, loving those movies as a kid, I'm I, I couldn't help, you know, Wes Craven directed both. He he was just bringing that whole feeling, that whole vibe into the movie as, and, and this is something we'll talk about, really how we characterize this as a, a pastiche piece of work, right? Where we're paying homage, all these other, all these pieces of these horror films are kind of, are kind of um, patchworked together and brought into this one new work, which is so fantastic. And anybody that watches this movie that likes horror films, just it's going to have so much fun being able to kind of play the game to pick out all these things that they've seen from, from other films. So those were the three big ones for me. And while they're not identical, there's so much that, that connects those, uh, you know, from the scenes from this movie to, to scenes from those other movies. So, um, and then one thing I just want to also mention is <laughs> we talk about, I could go on all day as that's why we're doing this pod, right? Uh, you know, Casey in the first scene, my God, she looks exactly like Tina Gray from Nightmare on Elm Street. She's got the, the short blonde bob, and and you know this is that's that's not by mistake. And then you've got Nev Campbell playing Sydney, who looks exactly like Helen Loggenkamp. You know you've got that that the brunette, the contrast between the blonde and the brunette. So I thought that that was uh, that was interesting. All right, Jim, that's good for all the setting. There's definitely tons of like scenes that look the same as other movies. But of course, the characters, like you mentioned, they look like characters from other movies. We talked about Billy Loomis looking a lot like the Johnny Depp character from Nightmare on Elm Street 1. But let's move on from that to some of the constructs that are super similar 
in this movie too, this sort of, in a way it's like they're trying to do the classic horror movie by using all those elements that you've seen in tons of other uh, horror movies. There's an, uh, an opening murder scene. And what's really special about the one in Scream, because it's not uncommon that a character gets it in the first scene, right? Horror movies do it all the time. Hey, we talked about yep. Anaconda a couple of weeks ago. Hey, even, even, even a quiet place. Shit, we can't get away from it. Hey, even a quiet place opening scene had a, had a death scene, right? So it's pretty common uh, move. But what was really cool about Scream was they put their title actress in the first scene and she got killed in the first scene. And right away that tells you in this movie that nobody's safe, right? Yeah. Like what a cool move to do to like – put Drew Barrymore up there as like a headline actress and then an actor, sorry, and then have her, you know, taken out right away. So that's With, pretty cool. Absolutely. Good point. With, you know, this is Nev Campbell coming off party of five doing party of five, right? Who's the bigger star at this point? Is it Barrymore or oh, yeah. is it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I guess as a film actress, right? Yeah. She's already been out there and you know, she was a child actress as well. So she's already been through all that. Um, I don't oh, know E.T. She- E.T., you know, <laughs> come on. But there's other things she's been in by now. I'm trying to think what they were be what they would be, but I don't think Nev Campbell's done a big movie yet. And uh at No, this wasn't this her career. first movie? Like her first kind of and then she went on to do, you know, eighteen sequels for Scream. Yeah. But Party of Five was like a an absolutely massive show. Yeah, but anyways. She's a big star at the moment, but I don't think she's as big a star. But I and I and I'm pretty sure if you look at all the promo for Scream, again, you know, we should have done is watch the trailer. It's what we should always do. Um, the original trailer, but um, Drew Barrymore is put up there as one of the title, like name actresses on yeah. all the posters and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And they made her look like one of the characters from the old movie. So like, you know what I mean? But yeah, no one's safe. She, she gets it and she gets it in a classic killer style, right? Just brutal. The scene, you know, the opening scene, I think it's worth noting. We're not doing the plot here, but one of the, you know, the use of the telephone is something that we'll talk about in a minute, but one of the brutal gut-wrenching scenes that, you know, makes it like, you know, these slasher films, you can kind of detach yourself a little bit. You're not, maybe not so emotionally connected is is when her mom picks up the phone and Drew Barrymore is ca- holding the, the portable phone and she's being dragged and she's dying. You can hear her breathing into the phone. Yeah. And then the mother's like, oh my, oh my God, that's my, you know, that was like, heavy hidden right and then you know you know like when you watch a movie like that it's like okay well you're not fucking around here you know we're in for something and and you know we found out we are as we continue to watch it but anyways the construct yeah so the next thing would be that the town is is in panic there's a murder in a small american town and the and right away it's like it's like torn the fabric of the town apart everyone's like you know, out there wondering what's going on and everyone's, you know, stressed out and confused and the media is there and the cops are completely lost about what to do, but they're trying to, they're trying to assure everyone it's going to be fine. We're going to get to that in a sec. And then, yeah, it's in one location that this killing spree happens and, uh, you know, straight out of Crystal Lake, straight out of, you know, pick your movie. You know, you've got the sheriff here, you've got Dewey's takes a, a prominent role and, and he's connected to, uh, you know, the victim in a way. And then you've got Halloween uh, where you've got the sheriff plays a prominent role, ends up getting it. You've got many instances in Friday the 13th movies where you've got the police, you've got the sheriff involved. And the point I'm trying to make here is these killers are so terrifying and 
you know, there's this, I, I feel like this, this inclusion of the sheriff is almost meant to uh, promote this feeling of helplessness. Oh, for like, sure. Like, you know, even though the police are here, even though we have our so-called authorities, the, the, the so-called people that we're, that they're supposed to be able to protect us, you can't protect us from this killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, in a lot of those movies, it's a supernatural killer. So they couldn't even do anything if they did get into a, you know, firefight with him. But yeah. in, in, in a lot of these movies too, it's a serial killer who's just evading them and basically toying with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and these by the way, are, Jimmy, is this uh, the sheriff? Is he not the same guy from Halloween? The actor? No, no. The guy from the Halloween, no, this guy right here. No, the guy from Halloween is, um, I don't know his name offhand, but he's not the he's not the same guy. There's been when uh, you go his through. Name is, oh, you know what? I was wrong. It's a nightmare. He was he's from Elm Street. He is, yeah, yeah. He's the same sheriff as Elm Street uh, first one. Uh, his name is jo- the actor's name is Joseph Whip, and uh, yeah, he plays plays the same guy. So there's a lot of casting in this movie for that, sure that references past movies as well. Yeah, but but just the idea of the idea of the police there, the idea of the sheriff, the idea of authority, it's there. But 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 it, it they're not gonna be able to help to help anybody. Those are the five sort of big homages that we saw. There are more, but those are five things that we picked out that, that we think were worth talking about. And now we're gonna flip it a little bit. What are five things, Rob, that this movie is doing that perhaps is being well, that's new, that's original, that might be being picked up on other movies after it that are kind of pulling from this, just like this movie pulled from movies um, earlier. So I'm going to reverse our order a bit here, James, because yeah. I think the first thing we should talk about is that this movie is a pastiche and it's very meta. And then what I mean by that is that it's a yeah. movie that is self-consciously a movie. Um, it's from the opening scene onward. Everyone in this movie speaks like the dialogue is written in a way that people don't really talk. And what I mean by that is they talk, about everything in terms of movies and at first it's kind of done gently and, it, and like because the the killer is on the phone with drew barrymore and he's trying to get her to do movie trivia with him and all that kind of stuff but then throughout as soon as we hit the next scene you know billy loomis makes a reference to uh the exorcist um you know oh, our relationship has become it went from r-rated to pg-13 PG yeah and then like you know as it goes every person in the movie uses movie references as their frame of reference for what's happening in their town. And, and that's because it's a killer in a small town, which is just like all these movies they've seen, but they talk in a way that's forced, but not in a way that's bad for us as viewers. Like I enjoy the dialogue because again, there's another moment where your brain is constantly clicking off all the references they're making. But that's what makes this movie interesting is that it's totally self-aware of itself and that had not been done before, at least not to this to this extreme. Um, and it's a tough thing to pull off because it's like they are telling you everything you already know about the genre. They keep identifying things. Like, you know, they have a character in here, Randy, who we've talked about, is the video store guy, yeah. who, who is constantly pointing out all the tropes of horror movies that – uh, that we're just falling into. You know, he says, you know, the dad is a red herring and the cops are useless and all these things that you're like, yeah, that's that's exactly what happens in a horror movie. And then, of course, Randy goes through the rules. Later on in the movie, he talks about the three rules. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. Let's review those rules. He says, number one, 
you can never have sex. <laughs> Number one, you can never have sex. In a never have sex. Yeah. And we've talked about that in <laughs> Anaconda again. Uh, we talked about that. We've seen that in every horror movie. Usually anyone who's sexually active, especially if it's outside of a chaste or like married relationship, um, it is the reason to be killed, basically. And this is really enacted upon women a lot in horror movies. And the second thing is... Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No drinking, no drugs. Because, yep. again, that is a sin. And it it's something that the, the killer sort of... It's not that he's out there trying to correct that. But it, the point is, like, he punishes those who commit sins. I feel like Jason didn't discriminate very much, you know, with when with drinking and drugs. I remember in one movie he he went after a group. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> the movie puts the the Jason movies they always put it in though. Like this oh, for sure. Zip, yeah, yeah. People are, zip like two lovers into a into a sleeping bag and bang them against a tree at one point. Yeah, and you know, there there's definitely a, you know, a couple there's a scene with twins and a lot of pot smoking and I, I, I want anyways go go on with the rules and I want to I want to jump in or something. And then the last rule that he brings up is never ever ever under any circumstances say I'll be right back because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. <laughs> never leave a room and say I'll be right back. No, I'll be of course, right back. Yeah, <laughs> cue Matthew Lillard. <laughs> so of course, like it's 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 like. It's that, it's that thing where the actors and characters in other horror movies are not aware of themselves being in a horror movie. So they do say things like, I'll be right back. And of course they get killed. And this one, he's pointing it out. Like, you can't say that because it means you're going to die. Yeah. And of course, every, people start playing with those rules. So I think it's really fun that the movie is so self-aware of itself. It's actually laying it out for you, the viewer, to like get it and to, to see it and feel it and know it. And then, of course opening the door for itself to mess around and play with those with that genre and change it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of those things just just specifically on that third reel there, right? Where he goes, you know, uh, and never say I'll be right back. And then Matthew Lillard steps up and he goes, Anybody want a beer? Yeah, I'll get one. And he goes, All right, I'll be right back. And then it's just like this great, they all kind of laugh and cheer. And then he he goes off and, you know, he's going off and doing what he's doing. But then the next scene where there's a camera that's been set up and then there are there's Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox's character, and then the cameraman who are who are viewing it. There's a 30 second uh there's yeah, a 30 it's like second a surveillance take camera. But but she leaves and I don't know if you catch it, she says, I'll be right back. And I I didn't catch it on the first couple times that I was that I was watching it, but she says it not in the way that it was previously stated with Lillard. She just says it very kind of just off the cuff, just rolls off it. But I kind of picked up on that. I thought that was kind of clever and 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 you know, just clever that they put it in there. So yeah, so they're they're definitely they're playing with the genre, uh, and it's and it, it's awesome. It's fun to watch. I think it just makes the movie more enjoyable. The second thing is, you know, one of the things that we looked at is is the the use of the phone. Especially in the opening scene, I feel like that phone call and maybe, you know, how do we characterize it as technology as a conduit to the villain where, you know, you know, you would see like in the opening scene in Halloween, it's looking through the eyes of the mask like POV style, but but this connection is is through through a phone and you know, that's a little bit different, a little bit unique. Not saying it's not been done before, but even that's something from that opening scene with Drew Barrymore, if I think to The Ring, uh, 
six years later and the opening phone call. And there's, there've been some other movies uh, that have used that where that phone call comes in. I, Rob, I thought that was kind of interesting and unique rather than just having the stalking killer. Uh, there was the use of the phone. And then we see how that develops over time with the use of, um, you know, social media and movies, the, the use yeah. of TV and movie. And it just kind of spirals from there, right? Yeah. Technology becomes a weapon of the killer, yeah. which in the past it wasn't necessarily because the, the, the killer was usually supernatural or or had like, you know, used knives, for example, and just stalked people. Didn't necessarily uh, seem savvy when it came to techno- technology use. And I think what's really cool in this scene, uh, that opening scene with the phone is, um, one of the times when she hangs up, she says, I'm about to call the cops. And like the phone rings again before she can even do that. And it just scares the shit of her. Cause she knows it's the killer again. Yeah. Uh, it's just really cool things like that, where the phone is now like this, this nagging, you know, and it's like, it's like the killer just keeps getting closer, almost based on the phone calls. It's like, it's like the fact that it's ringing tells you that he's nearby, you know, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. And we, you know, like that would, that was something that was, that was something that was new. And that was just because that's part of, you know, the phone was kind of necessary because of who the killers were, because they needed to disguise their voice in order to enact their crimes. So I thought that was just clever how that all, how that that's all pieced together, how that's used. Like the, the phone is used as part of their, part of their arsenal of weapon to kill, which is just awesome. And we're about to talk about this. Our next point that there is two killers right that 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 this was oh, a partnership yeah, which is totally unique uh, that, that i'm aware of i can't think of another movie where that was sort of two killers working in tandem but did you find yourself trying to figure out who is who at one point I'm, I'm i found in my head i was often trying to figure out like okay who made that call but who's the one who's in the house so there's one scene where there's an attack on there's an attack on sydney and then the killer so the killer is putting their arm through the 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 um, the door is jammed up against the closet door, which, by the way, is is another scene exactly from from Halloween, where Michael Myers has a knife and he's kind of coming through the, the door in the closet when Laurie Strode has um, barricaded herself in her room. Anyways, so that's Jamie Lee you're talking about, right? Jamie yeah, Lee Jamie Curtis. Lee Curtis. Yeah, Laurie, when Lee I say Curtis. Laurie Strode, I'm using yeah, just using the character's name, but that's Jamie Lee Curtis, right? Janet Lee's famous daughter or famous mother, depending how you look at it, and the Scream Queen, according to this movie oh. too. Of course. And um, so she's, she's basically trying to get away. So then the, the killer leaves and I timed it. It was four and a half seconds before Billy came through the window. (laughs) So at that point, either that was bad editing or I knew there was, I knew there was two killers. Right. And it just, you know, I, I think, you know, you watch it the second time and then, you know, there's two killers, two killers. But I think even on my first time through when we were watching it as kids that, you know, you could, you could sense that there was a couple things happening, right? Somebody would walk away and then just some of the looks that those two were giving each other, you felt like there was some kind of connection, uh, some kind of partnership. So, Oh, so I remember, I don't remember when I saw this, but I do remember not realizing there was two killers until it was revealed. I, I don't think I ever figured that out while watching it, but it does. Uh, it did definitely, once you know it and you're watching it again and again, it definitely brought up some questions for me. Like, okay, so that means that Stu is attacking Sydney and that uh, Billy's operating the phone because we see him drop the phone later. And it's and so it turns out they can't figure out that it's him, but that's because he's got a cloned phone. Anyway, so point being, he's the one operating the phone. Stu's the one chasing because I doubt it's the same person because Stu is in the closet inside the house, right? Yeah, no, no. So he can't be on the phone. 
Yeah. Yeah. They're doing it together yeah. with, yeah. And so what's, so, so then I'm like, okay, but why would Stu be the one to kill Sydney unless he didn't intend to actually kill her? And they were only trying to like really scare her and they were trying to milk it for another one. Cause later on at the end of the movie, it's like a day or two later and they say it's the anniversary of your mom's death and they were trying to kill her on that day. Yeah. But then I'm like, but you were trying to kill her two days earlier. So which is it? But, but were they, we, you know, we so, talked about, so you don't being, think they were trying to kill her. Well, you think- I just feel like it's it to me when, when, when the attack scenes were coming, there was a lot of like, there's a lot of slapstick you know, getting hit with a freezer, falling over, you know, getting hit with like, you know what I, I mean? I, I love that by the way. Cause I love that this killer is not supernatural and that oh, he, yeah. I love that he's getting the shit kicked out of him every time he tries <laughs> to kill someone. And it, you're right. It does speak to the incompetence of him as a killer. And that does point back to, it must be one of the teenagers. Fucking high right? school, yeah, high school boy, right? Yeah. It has to be, boy trying right? to do it. Yeah. That does, it does help you point to that. You're right. But yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. I'd love to go back now and look and see if they had, if I could tell who was who when they were masked up, right? Like if you kind of just really studied their movements out of the costume, I don't know if I have time for that. <laughs> to well, go we could think about it because our next point was about the motives in this film. Yeah. And I think what's, this is what I find a little hard with this film, but so Stu kills Drew Barrymore, I believe, because we learn later on or two scenes later, one scene later that Stu and Drew Barrymore were exes and um randy says uh something about yeah because she she dumped you and then tatum who is now Stu's new girlfriend says i thought you dumped her for me so there's definitely like oh we don't have the full story Stu was probably rejected and dumped so you think that was a revenge kill yeah totally i I can't figure out what other reasons Stu is in this for then aren't they just psychopaths that are going on a killing spree based on their love of killing from movies from the past no, because I think they originally uh, they they always reveal a little bit more that tells you that it wasn't simply that because well we okay we find out about that we find okay. out about Billy yeah. Billy Loomis's yeah. uh, blames Nev Campbell uh, uh, Sydney's mother for breaking up his parents' marriage because she slept with his that's dad. right yeah and yeah. so he's enacting his revenge he enacted his revenge on the mother why he and then he so this is a fucked up thing because then. He enacts his revenge by killing the mother, as we learn later that he actually killed her too. Yeah. I believe we also learned that he raped her, which makes him even more like- Despicable and disgusting. Despicable. And then he decides to date her daughter. Now, was he dating her before? I guess he was dating her because they said two years ago, right? So he was dating her during that time. He stays with her and then he plots to kill her a year later. Yeah, and, and gets and, into the whole sexual side of it and tortures her Yes, because he also is trying to have sex with her the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So he's really her. fucking with her in multiple levels, right? Yeah, Just, he's a piece of shit. So there <laughs> yeah, you go. Like that that actually is, makes him a more interesting character for a film because you realize, wow, what a terrible fucking monster this guy oh, is. Oh, he's a, he's a villain. Yeah, he's a villain. He's yeah. a villain. You know what I mean? And that's what's... That's what's it's a good point. Fucking great about him. So Stu then is his kind of his patsy, but Stu has reasons too. Stu wants to kill his ex-girlfriend, we assume. Who kills Tatum? Because T- Stu leaves the, the room at one point and we assume and then she bumps into Ghostface Killer in her in the garage. But Billy shows up right after this because he wasn't at the party, but she dies and then he pops up all of a sudden. 
So it could have been either one of them, but it seems more likely that it was it was um, it seems more likely that it was Billy because we see Stu later on like saying goodbye to people leaving the party. Yeah, I you know what, <laughs> I I think that is, is he doing it to somehow do a solid for his friend? I, you know what I mean? I, 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 no, I, like, I think he's trying to wear Sydney down more. He's killing off one of her yeah. confidants, the one person who was there to help her, who's been the person that she speaks to all the time. And yeah, Tatum's and, proven to be not so dumb. She's actually like not dumb at all. So I should say she's proven to be pretty whip smart. And she's like, she's really good at like cutting guys down. She constantly throughout the movie is cutting down her brother who is Dewey, the deputy sheriff. She cuts down her own boyfriend more than once in the movie when he says something dumb, she immediately kind of snaps at him. Yeah, so very sarcastic, very, you know, she's a strong female, confident. Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. And she's Self, defensive. Self-assured, yeah. She's very defensive of her friend, Sydney. Yep. So take away the lieutenant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I could. I could believe that. But why does Stu let her let him do it? That's what. That's the other weird. Thing. Does he really like her? I don't know. I think that guy is. If you when you know we finally learn more about that character, this guy is. is I'm not. I don't want to say that he's not the smartest, but he seems like he's fairly easily manipulated. He's a guy that's a lot of talk, a lot of a lot of bravado, but I'm not sure there's. You know, he's not the brains behind the operation here. That's a good point. I, you know what I mean? I, I don't. Think this guy is like the one pulling the levers. No. So I think I think he could be. He could have been molded into kind of just going along with whatever Billy wanted to do. Right? He had the whole idea. He, you know, I don't even find out when when. Uh, we get to the end and he's revealing the plan and then he says and we're gonna do this isn't that right billy you know what i mean then he's kind of laughing before they start cutting each other so i think he kind of just pays deference to 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 billy there right who's got the whole the whole plan but it's interesting to think about yeah who's killing who what's who's who's got the motive for for each one um but as you mentioned right uh you know they we talked about this. Is it they don't like women? Uh, I okay. So this is my sort of pet theory here. Rob, let's go with your 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 theory here. I I definitely see these guys as being total misogynists. Like the and and like they are, they're all fueled by teenage male rage. Right. This is like what we talk about now a lot with like um, uh, poison male culture. What do we call it? Toxic masculinity. Yeah. Toxic. These, yeah. Yeah. These guys blame women for everything, and they and they get extra mad about rejection. Right. Uh, we learned that Drew Barrymore probably actually dumped Stu. And so that gives motivation to him. He's been rejected. And so he wants to get back at her. And right, don't forget, Steve was killed too, quite aggressively and brutally, right? The, yeah, the new boyfriend. The new boyfriend, right? Yep. Exactly. And then- Which would fit the narrative as well. Like if you actually think about the scorned boyfriend and then, you know, or the scorn, you know, taking out the the new beau and, and the previous uh, relationship, it fits. And then even the way the killer speaks to women on the phone. You hang up on me again, I'll cut you like a fish, understand? He's very like, uh, don't you hang up on me, you little bitch. Like he does, yeah. he says all those kind of things that he's like so easily angered, or uh, anchored. He's so easily angered at anything, anytime a woman steps up to him or um, kind of puts him in his place. Oh, he, con- yeah. He, can't, we- he, he does not like being condescended. He gets so mad. Yeah. Yeah, it takes the power. We very condescending until it kind of feels it, you know, kind of gripping away. She was being 
when uh, in the opening scene, you're right, you know, she's being a little bit playful and then he goes along with it. But the minute she kind of pulls back a little bit, he, he feels the need to really just aggressively assert his dominance over it or at least try to. And he wants to punish her for like lying about not having a boyfriend because she's kind of flirting with him on the phone because it's like, who's this weirdo? And she, you know, maybe she is having some fun with it. And then he, when he finds it, I thought you had said you didn't have a boyfriend. You know, like he's like, yeah, because he's in his head, you can hear him thinking like, yeah, you're a lying little, you know, yeah, uh, et cetera. And then, and then throughout this movie, that's a real theme because Sydney has to cope with the idea that, um, the town sees her mom as someone who was loose and was a slut and all this stuff. Like you even hear the two girls in the bathroom, like shitting on Sydney and her whole, her whole backstory because they're like, Oh, her mom fucked her up because she was a slut and all this stuff. And so like that, that all those kind of messages are so common though in the horror genre that this movie is essentially taking them all on at once. And I think it's really interesting to, to see this as a feminist film. And the motive of these killers being so much about their inability to get women to do what they want. And that's why Billy, you know, Billy's constantly pressuring Sydney to have sex with him to the point of like, there's a scene where she finally, she seems to come to the realization that it couldn't have been Billy, at least at this point, it seems like it couldn't have been him because they have checked the phone records. And so, you know, she's saying to Billy, like, I'm sorry, it was obviously a weird moment for me. Like I thought you might've been the killer. And he immediately turns on the like, yeah, Sid, like, how come you don't want to fuck me? Because you think I'm a kid. (laughs) Like, he lays on the guilt right away. Sorry, please understand. Understand what? When I have a girlfriend who would rather accuse me of being a psychopathic killer than touch me. And it's such a dick move, right? Like, he's such a fucking asshole about it. Um, Okay, okay, go on. I want to... See, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, so I guess I'll wrap it up is just saying that like this male rage and this male like inability to get what you want from women results in them wanting to kill them. It's like, I mean, I was joking earlier, but it's a little bit like the the roots of the incel movement here. (laughs) Do you think... Do you think that the the casting, not the casting, but the presence of really like... uh, males that are 180 degrees that kind of function as allies for the females, the strong females in this, um, in this movie, in particular, Dewey, the sheriff who almost is subservient to his sister, but it's a sister, right? You take shit from your sister, but he's an ally. He's a good guy, but also from, uh, Henry Winkler, the principal and how enraged he is with those guys. He expels them right away. They're running around with the ghost face mask, right? You know what I mean? And he fucking gets it. And I feel like threatens him with scissors. Oh, he didn't threaten. He lays it. You know what I mean? I'm a teacher. Like you fucking can't do that. Uh, I know. <laughs> but, out of work. But didn't you think that like they were dressing him up to be more uh, maniacal to like almost point that maybe he's the killer? Yeah. And, and, you know, when I remember watching it the first time where you think, okay, is it the principal? Maybe. Is it the sheriff? Because there's the shot of the boots. There's all these little clues, right? Mm-hmm. They point at everybody. Yeah. That Wes is doing throughout the film to kind of get you to look in a different direction, right? He's, you know what I mean? The old, like I'm holding, I'm holding the ball one side, but look over here. So I, I you know, I, I think when you, when you contrast the different male characters you have in there, you've, you've got some, yeah, exactly. You've got, you, you do have that toxic masculinity, right? that we're addressing in this review, but also in, you know, the greater societal context. Uh, but you also have, you have some good guys, at least 
at least they're painted that way in the film. Uh, and I think it's important to have those in there to kind of have a little bit of balance from the male perspective. Yeah, but they're also not that effective, right? Like Dewey's not the smartest dude. No, Dewey's a doofus. He, he ends up with a knife gets... in his back. <laughs> Randy shows up just in time, but he also just kind of gets shot and then gets pushed out of the way. And then I guess the other ally is what? The news the news truck guy? Like <laughs> That guy's once he takes fucking hoagie out of his mouth. <laughs> Like you always have to have like, like. <laughs> well, you were you saying you have to have somebody that doesn't speak a lot. That's in the film industry. That's a little bit overweight. That's eating something not healthy. <laughs> yeah, with his hat movies. backwards. He, that's actually great casting. I forget that actor's name, but he's hilarious. Yeah, he's like, I, what, what's what else has he been in? Um, man, he, well, he was in um, Deadwood, right? He was the bartender in Deadwood. He was oh, excellent. Fuck, you're right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good movie or uh, show. Yeah, exactly. that's a great show. Anyways. All right. And so our I last think... point here, let's move on to the last and biggest point, I think, is that, well, like we've, we've talked about there's a strong female lead and I think we can dig into yeah. that more. But what I think you pointed out that's interesting here is that there's an additional strong female lead with Gail Weathers, who uh, is actually there to deliver the knockout blow. But she's like a, 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 a synergetic character with Sydney. They don't actually get along, but they – she's an antagonist that pushes uh, back on Sydney, but they sort of get to the end result together and both of them take shit from no one. Yeah, exactly. Both of them are strong. Both of them, like you said, don't get along, almost working towards this, the same goal, I think, uh, helping each other out, but just even having the presence of, you know, she gets, she gets fucking punched in the face by Sydney and, and she's, she's still there, right? She's still, uh, you know, one of the things about that character that I, that I really, that I really liked was, um, you know, her strength, but, but it was questioned a little bit when, you know, cause she's showing conviction because she's trying to find out who and trying to pressure Sydney to reveal that, maybe she didn't make the right call and, and you know she didn't she didn't know 100% that that person leaving the house was um was cotton who's in jail right who, so she who, we should clarify who has been convicted of killing her mother a year before and this is before we've been revealed before that it's been revealed that the killers were the killer of her mother so at this point she Sydney believes it was this guy cotton rob what did you think of when she goes for a walk with with Dewey to try to find, you know, it's kind of a silly, it's kind of a silly scene. And I didn't love that, that, you know, she was kind of, or the two of them were kind of taking a little bit more of a romant, romantic angle uh, at that point in the film, near the, near the climax, like kind of the end scene where things are really happening. Do you think that was just kind of written in there to... Like they go for a walk to find this abandoned car that has been uh, that's been pulled off the road, and you know he's the sheriff. He gets a call to go investigate it, and instead of driving down, he decides that uh, he wants to ask her for like you know a, mid- <laughs> a fucking midnight stroll down the side of a, a road, and then they almost get run over by the guys that are going to find the principal who's been fucking hanging from the football goalposts. Like I don't know. For me, it was just yeah. kind of just a little bit all ridiculous. What did you make of that? You know. so, so I have a theory on this one too, because uh, I think you're right. Gail Weathers is not a likable character at first. Anyway, you don't want to like her because she's kind of, um, you know, she's pushy. She's trying to, she's trying to get in on the story and like Sydney's obviously uncomfortable like talking to her. And you learn later that, you know, Sydney feels like uh, Gail 
said some bad things about her uh, when she was covering the case and that, you know, tried to demonstrate that her testimony was not perfect. And so, um, you know, Gail's not necessarily likable at first. And so when she starts meeting Dewey, we start seeing her warm up a little bit and we start yeah. to like her. And what I think is funny about this is that it's, the scene where they go and they fall and they roll in the, in the ditch and they, they, they kiss, but then it doesn't go any further than that. Cause Dewey says he's on duty. It's, it's funny to me how that becomes. <laughs> yeah. It becomes I'm on duty. Then go in your car. <laughs> but this becomes a moment where you have a chaste relationship again in this horror movie genre with, you know, that, turns into um point being that like it's a chase relationship so she doesn't get killed so it and, and at the same time you're hearing randy read the rules it's almost around the same time that this these two things happen but i i, I agree with you that dewey is leaving his post where he's supposed to be watching sydney and he just decides to go for a long walk with uh gail so that he, yeah, can... he says he says quote oh it's a beautiful night to go for a... <laughs> it's like what is that man yeah uh, I don't think Dewey gets to meet a lot of women. And so the fact that he's getting somewhere with Gail Weathers was his uh, big yeah. moment. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was a, I think she's a cool character. I actually really liked her. I thought, I thought she performed it really well, by the way, Courtney Cox, I think did a really good job with this character, especially yeah, right because in her, in her friends heyday. Yeah. And again, with Nev Campbell coming off party five, she's coming off friends. Um, and, there is a sort of similarity to who she plays on friends with Monica, but it's pushed in a different direction. Like it's, it's like her, um, her forcefulness is pushed into another direction and made into a new character. And I thought yeah. she pulled it off really well. Like she, she's both conniving and intelligent, you know, like she, she I don't know. Like I thought it was really well played for me. You know, Gail Weathers kind of functions similarly to uh, Donald Pleasance's role as uh, Dr. Loomis in Halloween, where mm. they they offer a different perspective on the situation on the on the character. So, for example, in this situation, Gail Weathers kind of gives this media macro might not be the right word, but gives this I'll, I'll just use perspective right on looking at a different side of the main character, the protagonist. Uh, Sydney, right? That, you know, she uh, had a mother who was killed and it just kind of adds some layers and that there's, you know, even you have that scene with the newscast, right? Where she, where Gail's reporting now these new murders, right? To give a sense that like, you know, kind of the world is watching that this is, this is a little bit bigger mm -hmm. than just what's happening, right? And then conversely, when you look at, um, you know, Donald Pleasance or Loomis, when he comes and he talks to the sheriff, again, the appearance of the sheriff in Halloween 1, and, and he just, you know, gives a different perspective saying, this is not an ordinary man. This is evil, pure evil. I feel like it just gives, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a gravitas to the kind of the situation to make it a little bit more important, a little bit more impactful. And I think those two characters kind of, kind of do that think about this if you take gail weathers out then where, where's the story right it's it's a yeah. lot more linear right and if you take if you take <clears throat> michael myers's doctor out you know if we're going to connect those two movies if you take him out then it's just a madman who's just mad right you don't have somebody reinforcing the idea that i've worked with him forever the evil is still there right so i feel like those two those two characters really kind of function on the on the periphery but really kind of 
um, you know, bring it in. And I just love what they both offer. Yeah. And I think Gail's uh, story helps you learn the backstory to Sydney's mother. Like that's a really well, well scripted yeah. point that like you, she's not just there to be the antagonist and to shove a camera in, in uh, Sydney's face. It's also that she represents someone that Sydney's had to deal with early in her life when it came to, or a year ago when her mother died yeah. and that there's like more to that story than we know. And like, we're, and we're slowly unraveling that at the same time. So yeah. it's, it's <laughs> And Rob, that's why we work together. Backstory. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Just the fact that they bring in, they bring in, they bring in a backstory, right? They just bring in that idea. So, so at this point, we've, we've started looking at the characters. Obviously, we started with Courtney Cox, a.k.a. Gail Weathers. Let's look over, let's move over to Sidney Prescott. So what about this character uh, you, did you see that connected her to the previous movies? But what did you see in her that was new? You know, I saw somebody who was sure of herself, yet kind of struggled with this push and pull of, kind of being sure of yourself, being unsure of yourself, but but being really strong and not being flaky and and sort of holding hard to her convictions. You know, one of the things that I kind of not struggle with a little bit is that eventually she she gives in, she has sex. And that kind of that that confluence of when Jamie Kennedy is having that conversation downstairs and she's upstairs with the you know, that had to be there. But I think that I I loved her I loved her strength. I loved that she was cast. She looked exactly like um, the the cast character from uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And even though you don't think this is funny, anybody that that wants to do this timestamp one twenty three out where she's running away from the killer and she, with her bare hands, is able to tear apart a fucking fence. She throws nine boards of a fence to to escape. I I just thought that was I thought that was great. I think she's I think she did a really good job. I think in a lot of ways, she kind of plays, you know, the same character she did on Party of Five. She kind of just has this some of the gestures with her with her head and, and whatnot. But I thought she did a good job. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think I think she represents uh, a new take for the genre as well. She is the she's like this is where I say this movie might be a feminist is a feminist movie. I would say like her a scene on the phone with the killer. He says, "Don't you like scary movies?" And she says, "They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting." And I love that because it was such a cool setup for the whole movie. It's like, yeah. That is the frame of reference for the whole movie. The women are not idiots in this movie. No, exactly. And, and they also they, have a lot more dialogue. And, and they just, fight. They fight for their life in every scene. Whenever there's a, a fight scene with the killer, they like lay a beating on that guy <laughs> in their desperate attempt to, to escape. And they don't make stupid decisions. They usually make smart decisions about what they're trying to do. And the scene, And that scene actually sets up the thing beautifully because when – Ghostface killer pops out of the closet. She tries to go out the front door, but she put the chain on just two seconds ago. So she can't get out the front door and she has to run upstairs. So the movie does these clever things to like make things from the other movies happen or from horror movies happen. But now you've got a character who's smart enough to outsmart and outthink that. Um, And I also thought like the other key thing with her is like the idea of the sexuality being what kills you. 
she decides when she wants to have sex with Billy. She yeah, she's the one. Point. It's like her choice, and I think that's a really key thing. Where in yeah. you know we see her being pressured all the time, and she doesn't finally just succumb. It's like she decides, no, I'm going to do this, and it's not in a scene where she like seduces him in some like silly way, like we saw in Anaconda. Um, instead, it's like exotic dancing on the barge. <laughs> <laughs> instead, it's like she has decided she actually thinks it's an empowering moment for herself to help her oh, yeah. kind of get through some of the feelings she's going through. Unfortunately, she doesn't realize, you know, who she's sleeping with and that her bit, her boyfriend is the killer, but all her decisions are made for herself. Like, and I think that's an important distinction in this movie. She doesn't just run around getting chased the way Jamie Lee Curtis would often be in her movies. Uh, even though J- Jamie Lee has moments where she does have power in the sense at the end, she outsmarts the killer. But most of those movies, she's just being chased and she's reacting. Um, Sydney is actually trying to, Sydney's actually smarter than that. You know what I mean? Who's next, Rob? So we talked about Sydney. Uh, you want to look at, uh, do I look at Skeet real quick? Yeah, whatever. I don't know what's left to be said about him. We've covered him pretty good. Two things. Two things. Okay. First off, Billy Loomis. So there's like just the, you know, his character name, right? You know, we're going to connect that to Halloween. Second thing. Okay. So this guy, you know, you definitely know he's not in his right mind because he has this exchange with Sydney where he's like, she's just been fucking attempted murder. Okay. And then he comes at her with like, hey, it's been a year. Can we, can we fucking... <laughs> we're laughing like you know, we should be laughing but it's such a douchebag move that it is like, funny he, no it's, it's he's like no it's been a year tomorrow one year tomorrow i know what i think it's time you got over that i mean when my mom left my dad i accepted it's the way it is she's not coming back your parents split up this is not the same thing your mom left town she's not lying in a coffin somewhere okay, okay. it's been a year i've been through the same thing and she's like what are you your parents fucking split up my mother was brutally murdered <laughs> yeah yeah so you know she's just like not she's not having it and then but doesn't it like, show you his state of mind he he sees them as equivalent almost yeah, well, like, come on, haven't we all pulled that kind of shit off? <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is he sees it, he sees the fact that his mom left uh, as equivalent to, to her, her mom getting brutally murdered. murdered. You know, it, it was not, it was not, it was a very insensitive comment. And as she walks away, he, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's just like, oh, nice job, doofus or asshole or whatever he calls himself. But I just thought that, you know, it was a poor choice of words, right? Yeah. So that's <laughs> to say the least. Um, okay. So we talked about speaking of wanna... doofuses. What about stew? Oh fuck. I... <laughs> Matthew. Okay. This is let's let let's just refer to him as Scooby Doo. All right, because that's essentially what we're dealing. With. How Gooby is this man? <laughs> I didn't even think of it. <laughs> like he's fucking Scooby Doo. So this guy. You know, I've never been a huge Matthew Lillard fan. I I, I got to give him credit for this guy. He he knows no bounds when it comes to overacting, especially at the last scene, right? Where, you know, he's making the gun sounds. <laughs> like, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. He's just, he's, you know, he's, he's comic relief. He's super eccentric. He's all over the place. He's the sidekick, but the dumb like you call them, moron sidekick. And there's nobody I'd rather gorge myself with than you, Scooby-Doo. Well, my best friend. 
You're my best friend, buddy. So I don't know. What do you think about about Lillard and what he does? It's funny you say he's he's the sidekick because he definitely is, and I agree with you that he's. But I don't know if he's ever manipulated. Did we ever actually see Billy like put him in place? Like only at the end where they're. I guess there's a little bit of that where they're trying to execute the final part of their plan to make it look like they were injured in the fight. You know, t- to me, a lot of times, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, the idea of like a power dynamic. You know, not all the time needs to be needs to be verbal. It can be a lot about body language, a lot about deference, a lot about just the way people look and stand. And just, you know, I see Lillard, he's like very, you know, twitchy and he's like, and Billy's very calm, which tells me that he's the one that's, it. he's the one thinking, not reacting. And for me, there's a big difference there. So that's where I see him as the sidekick and, and being manipulated, being, being able to be brought into Billy's mind and whatever he wants to do, he's going to, he's going to be able to get uh Stu to go along with him. That's, but I, that's but the way I, I think see is it. Billy is the planner and master manipulator. Stu is, uh, falls into the other side of psycho killers in movies in that he's like, um, is he the hired gun? No, he's literally just psycho. Like he's, he, yeah, just mental. He's yeah. And like, I don't, it, he's probably the weaker point to me in terms of like what, like, cause I do think there is some motivation as to why he would have, you know, focused on Drew Barrymore's character to kill her. But after that, I don't really get his point. Like, why is he so into doing this? Like he, he does reference the movies too, but you always get the sense that he's like, I don't know. He's such an anti-nerd because he makes fun does of Randy he, all the time. Like, is he really a, a movie nerd? He doesn't he, come across as one. He fucking reminds me of like, like a third eye blind fan, you know what I mean? Like he, like a nut. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like ninety six, like can hardly wait. Jennifer Love Hewitt was dating him at the time, or something like that. Like he fucking needed to be in the movie, just because of who he was. And I don't know. I think that's all we need to say about Matthew Lillard. <laughs> what about? <laughs> Yeah, go on. What about uh, what about the sheriff? The deputy sheriff. You mean the deputy sheriff? Oh, deputy sheriff. Yeah, yeah. I'm the deputy in this town. Yeah. What do you think about him? Yeah, he's such a moron, <laughs> and he's such a. I, I, I think David Arquette actually plays this guy really well because you want to believe that David Arquette's doing a comedic role, and you realize, oh no, he's not. He's just playing a guy who's kind of like you know, squirmy and doesn't really have full confidence. And his sister's always cutting him down in public and he's the deputy and he still lives at home with his parents. And well, I, t- I told you he read for the part of skeet. Yeah. That's bizarre. That's, yeah. Yeah. And the then movie. he said to, and then he I was watching a, uh, uh, um, a documentary an interview with, with, with Wes and, and like I say, Wes, like I know him with Wes Craven and, <laughs> <laughs> And then he said, well, actually, Arquette said, no, I actually kind of like this this character better. Maybe he's just saying that and he no, had no chance of getting skeet, but who knows. But Well, he ended yeah. up, didn't he end up marrying Courtney Cox? So this kind yeah, of Yeah, they were married. They were did, married for like 10 years. Did they meet on this set? Anyway, not important to our movie podcast. But, um, I, I think Celebrity Dewey, gossip. I think one of the funniest scenes for Dewey to me is when Sydney is sleeping over at uh, his house, sleeping over with a... Uh, Tatum in, in the twin beds, the scene you, you pointed out. And uh, there's a phone call. Sydney gets a phone call. It's the killer. And then eventually she hangs up and screams, runs away or whatever she does. She, she, she's like, she's done with it. And 
uh, Dewey comes down the stairs or like enters the kitchen, like, what's going on? He's got his hand cut out. <laughs> He's got his handgun pulled for a phone call. And then he picks it and then he like gives this weird look and he like his eyes get all serious and he picks up the phone and he goes, Hello. 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 Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but it's the weirdest delivery of hello ever. Like he's trying to sound really macho. Hello. Yeah. And it's that was not good. It's hello. so yeah. It's so bad, but it's it's kind of perfect for who Dewey is. Yeah. So I mean, I thought that was pretty great. And of course Dewey gets stabbed in the back at the end and and uh, he survives, but but uh yeah, yeah I mean, he, I'm almost surprised he survived, but I guess he was more they need to incapacitate him rather than kill him. But I'm surprised he didn't get killed because we don't see it. It happens off camera. It's a more of a reveal that when um, uh, Sydney thinks that she's found help, Dewey falls through the front door and you see he's got a knife in his back and he's not going to help her, obviously. Yeah, I think like, you know what, if he hadn't have been a, such a big actor, do you think he maybe would have been killed? Because in like, if you go back to some of the other horror films, slasher films, like I, I'm, you know, off the top of my head right now, I'm thinking of Jason Six, right, where all the police, all the sheriffs, descend uh you know someone with tommy jarvis right and they descend on the camp and fucking the sheriffs are just dropping like flies like there's <laughs> there's arrows flying everywhere there's a tomahawk chop like you know but this guy you know just because he's he's a more prominent character he gets it in the back he kind of goes out with a whimper eh yeah like you know what i mean it's like a stab in the back and he kind of falls over and then that's it and then it's one of those guys that he's like an eric stoltz eh <laughs> Where he's like he's he's out and then he miraculously when there's no danger he's he's up on his feet again, so you but he's know, not important to the story at that point. No. And I think they, that's actually a good way to to incapacitate him and get him out of the way yeah. uh, for the script because like yeah he's you don't want him saving the day. It's much better that uh, it's much better that Gail finds the gun and she comes back and uh, helps Sydney survive that final scene. Yeah, I love that. I love I love how that was written in that it wasn't Sydney that it was Gail that comes in and just, because you just want, you know, you want to be surprised who actually does it. And just the fact that they, they picked her to, to deliver that for all the reasons we've talked about, uh, was, was fantastic. All right, let's wrap it up with, uh, Jamie Kennedy, yeah. Jamie Kennedy, right? Randy. Yeah. We got to talk about this guy. Cause he is, he's almost like the, the, uh, the conscious of the movie, the conscience of the movie. You know what I mean? Like he's, I don't know how to put it. He's like, um, there's always guys like this. This there's like cabin in the woods, the dude that smokes weed that doesn't get under the toxic smell. You know, he's the guy that's like telling everybody how the fuck it is and nobody wants to listen or, or kind of, they brush him off to the side. Right. He, he plays that, he plays that character. He doesn't have enough clout in his social circle to, to be taken seriously yeah, to persuade them of anything to persuade them. But he's, but he speaks the truth. So he kind of like, yeah, he's, you, you need, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a, a moral or truth compass for <laughs> the movie. Right. Um, that nobody follows, but. And because it's such a meta movie, everything he's saying is literally happening in front of you, which I love. It's, it's such a fun way to do them. Like it's, it's, it's such a fun element to have in the movie. This guy who's essentially narrating what's happening around you. Oh, it's, no, for sure. And you know, he, when he, he delivers the rules, right. 
that was a great, that was just like, that's part of the, one of the reasons why it just makes the movie so good because it was just a great scene. You've got a fucking rowdy group. Everybody's drinking. He gets up like he's performing, right? And he's yeah. delivering it while they have, they he have Hall- the movie. Yeah. They have Halloween in the background. And then what is so good about him is that, you know, he's really surprised as to what happens later on after everybody leaves. So there's a scene, right? Where you see him in the camera and he's lying back on the couch and uh, they're upstairs having sex. Right. So it would, it would, say that like you know the killer was near the two of them were upstairs having sex and he's downstairs alone in the house that is taken from jason seven right where you've got kind of like the geeky dude anybody that knows those movies star lord he's on the couch and he's kind of just kind of like drunk and then you've got the two upstairs that are having sex so that was another kind of homage piece that was back there but he he he's funny too you know what i mean he's a different kind of character he's not he's kind of dorky but he's kind of smart, kind of clever, kind of witty. And you don't have those, you don't have like, you know, the two main guys are kind of like dudes and you know, he, <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this guy's not like that. No. You know, he's somebody that I, you know, you'd want to sit down and have a beer with or whatever, talk to him about movies with. Right. I love you like him. Yeah. I, I love how in this movie, they try to point that at everybody that they all could be the killer, especially when they're first introduced. And so when we first meet Randy, he's like kind of being very crass about the killing that just happened. And he's making comments. And um, I, I saw this thing on YouTube where somebody pointed out that the way he's eating, like I think he's eating like sunflower seeds or something is pulled from Norman Bates from psycho. psycho killer, Norman Bates. Oh, really? like it's a, it's a homage to a scene where Norman Bates eats the same way. And then is like his whole, like, He's doing that Jerry Lewis imp- uh, imp- impression where he talks about the uh, the liver in the mailbox and all yeah. that. Yeah, yes. liver. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's totally like, a, he's kind of a dick in his own right too, um, but just different kind. Uh, anyway, fun character and, you know, makes yeah, you think fun. like, makes you think like, oh, he's just reenacting the movies. But that would be way too obvious in this movie to have a guy just reenacting the movies. Like that would be the first thing everyone's going to think of when they realize how, when they're watching this movie that's super meta. Um, that like, oh, it's the guy who's the movie store guy, of course. But I'm so glad they didn't go that route. Yeah. And then he's, he gets shot and then he, he delivers a great line at the end where now this is the point of the movie where the killer comes back for the one last scare, you know what I mean? And like it, it happens because it's so true, right? As the camera kind of comes in on the, the fallen killer, there's the hand that comes up, he sits up and fucking just it's perfect how he just, how he does that. Yeah. And, so, Sid- and Sydney finishes off. Sydney does get the final blow. Uh, on that scene because she's on got the scene, yeah. yeah and yeah. she pops Billy in the head so those are the characters you know we've we've had a long conversation about this movie uh you know we didn't go through the plot yeah I'm glad uh, we didn't do that yeah and I think Rob you know we've talked about this and you know I think we want to start to approach and I think we have been with the you know we're, we're starting to do more movies and just really start to have a conversation um that we hope the listeners can connect with and just really try to dig deep differently about, uh, about these movies and try to offer something a little bit, uh, a little bit different than just kind of going through the plot. Yeah. I think we were, we were experimenting out with Anaconda where we broke it down. And honestly, I think we liked our podcast best when that are not just plot regurgitation. So it's more fun to kind of find a little structure to talk about these movies. And, and then, you know, uh, through that, you get the whole story of the movie anyway. Yeah. We like to talk. We like to, some, you know, we agree a lot of the time. Sometimes we don't. You don't like my insult there? (laughs) (laughs) 
and that's what makes it and that's what makes it uh, makes it good. Every week we try to ask ourselves, could something like this happen in real life? Well, a lot of horror movies owe their whole existence to the Texarkana murders from 1946, where a man in a mask hunted and killed numerous people. Straddling the line between Texas and Arkansas, Texarkana was rocked by a series of brutal attacks, ultimately leaving five people dead and three people gravely injured. The media was quick to name the series of crimes, the Moonlight Murders, and the nickname that was given to the perpetrator was the Phantom Killer. According to various reports from news sources, the murders began on February 22nd. Two young people, Jimmy Hollis and Mary Janine Larry, gone to see a movie and decided to park on Lover's Lane. All of a sudden, they noticed a flashlight come to the window. And when they looked up, they were terrified. A man holding a gun and wearing a mask, a white mask, with two holes cut out in the eyes and the mouth. He viciously attacked them. And lucky enough, the two were able to escape, but the Phantom Killer continued to terrorize the people of Texarkana, Texas. With the second attack coming a month later, the victims again were out on a local lover's lane, but this time the Phantom Killer didn't leave anybody alive. The bodies of Richard Griffin, 29, and Polly Ann Moore, 17, were discovered the following morning. They had both been shot several times in the back of the head. In April, Paul Martin, 16, and Betty Jo Booker, 15, were also found murdered after a high school dance. The term serial killer hadn't been used before. It was new. So they didn't really know how to characterize but authorities in Texarkana strongly believed that the murders had all been committed by one killer. The FBI was brought in, and when that happened, a flurry of panic cast over the city. People slept with guns by their bedside. People checked into motels and hotels so they wouldn't be alone when their husbands were away. It was a terrifying time. To this day, the phantom killer and the murders in Texarkana, Texas, remain unsolved. There was, however, an arrest. In June of that year, the arrest of Yuli Sweeney, 29 for stealing cars. But one interesting thing was said as he was picked up. When police cuffed him and turned around, the words that were uttered made them stop and think. He said, Will they give me the chair? Strange words for a suspect that had been arrested for stealing cars. Soon he was convicted, and he was put behind bars for car theft. And he was never convicted for the murders or proven. 
but authorities believe strongly he was the killer. Over the years, interest has grown with the Texarkana, Texas murders. James Presley's book, The Phantom Killer, unlocking the mystery of the Texarkana serial murders, the story of the town in terror, presented a really compelling case for Sweeney's guilt in 2014. So when we think about masked killers stalking prey at night, could it happen today? Could it happen in real life? I believe the answer is yes. Jamie, before we get to the rating of this film, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, School Coach. School Coach is an online tutoring company that helps you learn in today's modern learning environment, which Jamie, you and I both know in this pandemic has been at home. And uh, I think a lot of people out there are probably looking for a little extra help considering, you know, uh, virtual learning, <laughs> depends where you stand. I don't know. I got little kids who do not like it. But um, there's people out there who need a little extra help and this is a great way to do it because you know, these are guys who are actually spending their time learning how to teach the best they can in a digital environment. Yeah, at School Coach, uh, they have teachers and instructors that are online experts. They do it every day, day in, day out. Uh, they offer a wide variety of services from online private tutoring to group tutoring uh, to educational um, consulting. So if parents have questions about uh, you know, testing, or if there's questions about, um, you know, different things that will apply to what the student might be going through in school, uh, then they're more than equipped to answer all those things. And they've got a lot of good reviews. Um, they are the elementary uh, educational experts, so they are focused on grades four to grade nine. So they mostly spend their time with their online tutoring for nine-year-olds all the way up to your first or second year of high school. So don't let uh, online schooling become a horror show for you. Contact School Coach at their website, schoolcoach.school, and you can receive a 25% discount on your first four sessions if you pop in the promo code RUNNINGSCARED. Thanks to School Coach for sponsoring this week. Thanks, School Coach. All right, Rob, now it's time we have to give it the running scared rating. When I think about this movie and I think about to how I had a just a fucking holy shit moment when I was a kid watching it mm -hmm. to watching it again, it still held up. You yeah, know? it did. It did. I, like I'm in, I'm 41 years old and, you know, it's, it's don't an amazing. Don't tell him, Jamie. You don't, don't tell him? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it's a great movie. Um, if I can talk about a movie for close to two hours, hour and a half, and I can enjoy it, and there's a lot of things that I can pull out of it, and as a like I, my bread and butter is slasher films. Um, for me, uh, this is this is four and a half footsteps, and just to review for everyone, you know, one footstep away from the killer, it, you know, that's you're gonna get your axed. Five footsteps away, you're you're gonna live. That means it's a good film, right? Yeah. Or I guess maybe it could be the opposite way, but that's how we were doing. For me, Rob, this is four and a half footsteps. So tell me, what are you taking the half off for? I, I you know, for me, I, it's hard to give this a a perfect film for this for one reason. 
well, there's a couple of reasons. The 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 Gale Weathers do we walk to find the abandoned car in the woods when he's supposed to be like it's like what the <laughs> you really fuck mad was about that, that scene? Right? Well, I just you know what it was just like from the fence tearing incident to the walk down and then the, then the, the old fashioned trains dodge when the the you know those guys were leaving the party going to the football stadium they're fucking tearing down the 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 road and I don't know man it just for me that's a half a point right there <laughs> wow um, so for me this movie is brilliant like and you know it's funny how we look back at this movie now and maybe it doesn't seem as revolutionary but. Uh, but to me, it still does. Like, I don't think there's like, you've seen other genre movies where they've tried to make fun of their own genre, like superhero movies that have made fun of the superhero genre or, or whatever you have. Um, this one was not just, a, wasn't like a comedy though. This isn't like a scary movie by the Wayans brothers, right? This is, <laughs> I mean, this is like, this is like a legit scary, fun, horror thriller movie. And yet it's, completely dissecting its own itself as it goes and it's entertaining you with that dissection like it's showing you like this is what this genre always does and we're going to make you think we're not going to do it and then we are or we're going to make you think we're going to do it and then we don't um so it kind of constantly plays with you and like keep that i think that keeps you on your toes and i love that um uh, that's just what makes it such a cool movie so if what if what would i take away from it i'm trying to think like what didn't i like about this movie i mean is it overly filled with references? Like, does that dialogue become a bit uh, forced when everybody speaks in movie terms? Like, including the, like, like including that you know the Fonz is the principal as a, as a reference. Like, did did they need to cast him to be the principal? Like, why was he in the movie other than to be like, hey, the Fonz is in this movie? Um, he even like he even like has his own jacket. I, I found a reference where he has the Fonz's jacket in his closet when he does that scene. He opens it. Like, why is that in there? Does it need to be in there? Is it just going too far? I mean, those are fun things for us to look at later. Um, but is it is more this, than I need? Is this how you know? Is this movie truly horrific? Remember, we review and we talk about and we dissect and we have conversations about horror and thriller films, right? So this is. You know, this is a slasher film and to play on other old, older slasher yeah, films, yeah. right? So is it, how scary is it? Yeah. Were you scared? Did you have a legit scare? I think the opening scene is, is brilliant. Yeah. It's scary and it's gory and it's, it's violent. But if, you know, just for me, I don't know that I was scared through the whole movie, it's hard, you know, it's hard. It's almost, especially with older movies, it's hard to be scared because we're so, especially because we're seeing them again. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stamp out on my four and a half. Yeah. I'm going to join you four and a half. Good stuff. All right. looks like four and a half. It is. We add it together. That's nine out of 10. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. You know, 90%. Okay. Rob, this has been a, it's a must see. Can I talk about one, one final thing? We didn't even yeah, talk about yeah, this. Yeah, of course. One of the things I love about this movie is the chase scenes. Okay, this movie's responding to how the horror movie genre had become super predictable, right? When you watched a movie, you could pick out who was going to die. You could pick out the order. You usually knew when they were going to go. Often you could tell how they were going to go. Like this movie had, had become fully aware of that and now is flipping on your head. So even the chase scenes are fun. The girls 
the women in sorry, the women in the movie know exactly how to escape or you know they're choosing the best methods to escape they're they're yeah. choosing the things that in your mind yeah. you're going yeah do that do that do that whereas in most horror movies the old ones you'd always go no don't do that yeah i know no. the decision making is improved right it's decision making is improved the the outcomes are more relatable and predict and and they're like realistic uh, realistic is the word i was looking for not um because they can they actually fight for their life and they actually land blows and hurt the killer and like um and yeah, and just like it's, it, it was fun. It made it smart again, and I think that's uh, one of the great parts about this movie and why it deserves such high. high Did you score. just talk yourself into? No. no, okay. I'm holding Pat four and a half, but I had to give it. I, I think when we get to the review section, sometimes we look for things to take away, and I want to make sure I add some things that. I know you work on a deficit mindset, eh? When yeah, you, you really, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I want, I, I, I want, I want to give it some credit, and that was where that was something I really loved was those chase scenes. I thought they were great. Yeah. All right. Well, well, there it is. And, uh, you know, that scream, hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, uh, send us a message, follow us on Twitter or Instagram, uh, links are at the, the top of the pod and look for a poll coming out. We're going to find out what you want to uh, hear us talk about. Uh, maybe if you have some questions, we can answer those on the next episode of running scared. The running scared podcast is written, produced by Robert Lendrum and Jamie Roberts. Edited by Robert Lendrum. Original music by Jamie Roberts. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Five stars would be nice. And see you next time on Running Scared. Scary night, isn't it? With the murders and all, it's like right out of a horror movie or something.